0: Hi everyone, it's Raghu again for Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network, and today uh, is is a special day. Of course, every day is special. I say that every podcast, but uh, in particular, having two very uh, very old and close friends of mine on the podcast is uh, is really uh, something I've been looking forward to. Sharon Salzberg and Danny Goldberg. Hi, Danny. Hey, Hi, Sharon. Hi. So actually this is your idea Sharon. cuz uh, cause, uh <laughs> when so we were all together at uh, a retreat with Ramdas and Christianus Jack Cornfield, Sharon and Danny was participating. So uh of course it was just after the election and of course there was a lot of uh a lot on people's minds and this became part of the dialogue that we were having at the uh, at this uh, retreat, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, that the topic of the retreat was finding the beloved, touching the compassionate heart. So certainly, everybody was very interested in in absorbing uh, those ideas and uh, making them uh, practical, uh, actionable, rather in our daily lives. Considering what had been happening. So, uh, actually, and Sharon said, we should continue this conversation in a podcast, and, and uh, Danny should be part of it, because Danny has spent a good part of his life uh, involved in uh, understanding politics and uh, all sorts of okay. different uh, – well, you do. So you, you understand know, you, <laughs> Well, it's not a good way to put it. Okay, put it a better way, Danny. Uh,
1: trying to understand.
0: Okay. <laughs> Well, I always look. I always look to you whenever, when as the election was yeah. prog- progressing, and we talked at different points. And
1: I never predicted the outcome, so um, I don't know how wise uh, my <laughs> remarks were. But um, here we go.
0: So, so the first question is: Where were you on that fateful moment, the night before the? Uh, the Eighth I guess we were all watching the results where where i mean i I gave up at a certain point and 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 sunk into a depressive sleep. I thought this would be the best thing I could do is to go to sleep right now um, so Danny, where were you and what was what was your reaction in that moment
1: well i uh had the bright idea of inviting about a dozen people over, and uh I just kind of knew. Just looking at the body language of the people on MSNBC, it just was clear to me by 9 or 9.30 um, that that uh, that Donald Trump was going to going to be elected. And uh, I went into the bedroom and never came out. I didn't even say goodnight to most of the people <laughs> that that were guests. Uh, Karen uh, Greenberg, my love, had to say goodnight to some of my friends. Uh, so I went into kind of a depression and shock. Uh, I'm not proud of it because, you know, uh, uh, my, my belief system is to not be so attached to externality, but, uh, boy, uh, the, the, um, the feeling of fear, particularly among, you know, Muslim Americans and p- people that are related to immigrants that, that feel threatened, uh, just felt palpable to me. And, and, and I'm still trying to internalize and understand how to balance, uh, different things I care about, you know,
0: Yeah, to say the least, Uh, and we'll get further into that. Sharon, where were you, that fateful moment?
2: Uh, I was in Bowery, Massachusetts, where I vote, uh, where the Insight Meditation Society is, and every four years, um, we've developed this sort of ritual. Joseph Goldstein and I live in a duplex, two separate houses with this shared entryway, and... uh, (coughs) We've been going to watch the returns every four years at Joseph's house. So there was a group of us. And I also left early and I went back to my house. and I just lied down in my darkened living room. And then I went over. I heard people in the entryway leaving a few hours later. And I went over and said, what happened? And they said, it really looks bad. And we had the odd turn of events in that we had people at the Insight Meditation Society on intensive retreat. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what we've done uh, always is every four years, we put a folded up piece of paper on the bulletin board. And it says, if you want to know who won the U.S. presidential election, lift this up. (laughs) So the year 2000 was really odd because people lifted it up and it said, we don't know yet. (laughs) So all these people are like really spaced out. right? They've been meditating intensively for six weeks and. They come to see me and they say, "Don't we usually know?" (laughs) Like the next morning, and we say, "Yeah, we do, but not this time." Uh Uh, So this was another really difficult one and took a lot of processing. It wasn't enough just to announce it. And I heard at Spirit Rock at our sister center, people fainted. You know, people started sobbing. It was it was very
0: hard. Yeah, and of course many same similar things were going on at the retreat a little little bit more perhaps not as um, dramatic as fainting and but there were certainly tears and there was certainly a lot of fear in people's hearts and uh and and we did chat about it and of course it gets to our i mean one of the core uh um, one of the core things that we have to really help each other with i think is how how do we handle our reactions, our anger, our fear, on one hand, and try and straighten out that inner part of ourselves, which is so polarized in this situation. And at the same time, not just sit on our hands. And uh, uh, And I know, uh, particularly, Danny, you've been an activist for a very long time. We have talked about this before. It is really... In uh, gigantic uh, black and white now that we need to address this uh, inside ourselves, so maybe you could talk a little bit about your feelings on on how to on that balance.
1: Well, I think the first thing that I keep coming back to is try to remember the vulnerability that several million people feel right now and and, and to, to find ways, not that I have any suggestions right now, to to reach out to those groups and members of those groups in particular. you know I, I feel um, uh, I, I feel that it's important that they not feel isolated and, and, and alone. And, and, and I particularly think, as I say of, of, of Muslims and, and, and immigrants and families of immigrants, S- secondly, I I think it's worth looking at the history of this country and being really realistic about what this country is. It's, 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 had many, many periods of darkness. It was created with great darkness with the genocide of native Americans and, uh, almost a century of slavery. And then another century of so-called reconstruction with Jim Crow and, and, uh, just terrible racism, uh, when we grew up in the sixties, uh, we had a military draft. We had a war where more than 50,000 Americans were killed. We had a J Edgar Hoover as head of the FBI. Uh, we, we had, um, really the birth, the birth of, of second stage feminism and the gay rights movement, you know, only came late in the sixties, early seventies. Uh, my parents uh, talked a lot about the blacklisting period after world war two. Um, You know, I'm reading a book now about Lincoln in the 1830s. People were jailed for writing uh, uh, articles uh, uh, opposed to slavery because it was interfering with commerce. Uh, So so these dark forces that are scary uh, have been with us for a long time. And there are many examples of people who shone their light uh, in those periods. And uh, I think that it's worth um, seeing it in that in that uh, perspective. Uh, you know, and then finally all the spiritual teachings that your network and the people that we love talk about and the Sharon teaches about is to remember who we really are and, and to not, uh, and, and we can be of most help if we can stay centered and connected to the light inside us and not uh, freak out every time there's a new appointment uh, <laughs> to this administration that seems to violate the, the ethical and moral and rational opinions that that we have. It's obviously a divided country. Uh, There are enormous numbers of people who don't read anything that we read and listen to anything we listen to. And I don't think it's a waste of time to try to see the light inside those people, even if we disagree uh, you know, with with the appointments of the Trump administration, and if if public opinion changes, uh, I do believe governments tend to change, and you know we have to figure out a way of relating to people that we don't normally uh, talk to.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, that's Sharon. That's uh, so. That to me is the biggest toughie in this. Uh, is this polarization and 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 doing our best to look at a person who we feel has um, perhaps not been told the truth. And that has a lot to do with what the media is doing aside from the right wing and to see them as a, as a, a real person as, as his holiness, the Dalai Lama says, everyone wants happiness and, and it's very much part of what you teach loving kindness. Um, but boy, it's, it's, difficult as you said Danny when when each one of these appointees that he's made um I was talking to Lama Tsultram just the uh, did a podcast with her a couple of weeks ago and asked her similarly what where were you that night and what was your reaction and she says and as it's continued with each appointee I feel my heart sinking each time and having to go and um and cup my hands underneath it, so to speak. So it's easy. It's 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 easy to say we need to see the light, um, but uh, talk about how we really get at the core of this knee jerk reactivity <coughs> to to uh, what what we feel uh, is an out and out. In my part, I just feel like there's so much ignorance. And I can't seem to cut through in my own self being able to be uh, spacious enough to accommodate a conversation.
2: Well, I mean, I think there are many, many levels to that. I had a whole discussion with somebody the other day somewhere um, because I think ignorance is a thing. You know, sometimes people are taking this um, to the degree of saying, well, almost like all views are equal and we have to be able to accommodate all views. And this is my view and this is their view. And I said, I don't think that's true. You know, like some views are really biased and they're ignorant and they're hurtful. And some actions are really wrong. You know, I mean, there's no way I'm ever going to say that killing girl babies is correct. Cause it's a custom, you know, or it's the way some people see things or, you know, racial bias is correct. It's, it's wrong, but um, you know, Confronting someone as sort of a bad person or an evil person or to quote your guru named Baba, throwing them out of your heart yeah. uh, is a very different thing. You know, and, and it's one of the difficulties I find in myself and certainly in talking to people is that, you know, the idea of cultivating compassion for someone does not mean you give up the fight, you know, and, and we think it's one or the other that either I'm going to have all this hostility and outrage and, you know, probably die young and younger, <laughs> not young anymore, but younger than I might. And, you know, and fight and fight, or I'm going to be sort of peaceful and mellow and let things be and have, you know, love for everyone in my heart. And it's, it's not like that. Um, mm. You know, why I come back to like the original teaching of the Buddha, they say, about loving kindness, which was the antidote to fear, and nobody thinks fear is a skillful thing it's going to help us see options it's going to help us carry out action or reach out to people that it's uncomfortable to be with um or remember those who could easily be forgotten. you know it's like I keep saying like i'm sixty four which is true, and I see medicare it's like right out there. <laughs> you know? It's like so close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, please, not before August. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just let me get on Medicare. What about everybody else, right? Yes. And it's so easy yes. to think, okay, I'm okay. I'll be okay. Yeah. Um, You know, so fear doesn't help any of that process. And so I, I keep coming back to the cultivation of love and compassion as the antidote to fear. That I need another way of moving in this scenario with as much adversity and difficulty and challenge as there is. And I think mean, why not take a chance on loving kindness and compassion and see what the cultivation does. You know, I don't really believe it any way it'll make me passive or give up.
0: Yeah. And I guess there's a there's a way it- I think I like what you said about you know it's not black and white. It's not okay. I'm I'm going to be real peaceful and loving to everybody, or I'm going to walk around you know with epithets either on my lips or in my mind, which we find ourselves in. I think, uh, and that's I think we got at that a little bit with Ramdas at the retreat, um, where we we talked about it's not like you're 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 going to do this work on yourself and then you will be a finished bit you'll be a buddha and then you'll be able to properly protest and 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 do the activism but it's 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 do the best that you can while you're in this body and all of all of this reaction is going on that you have awareness and consciousness mindfulness Uh, While this is happening and you're cleaning up as best you can these reactions while you are doing whatever it is that you can do to protest against um, some of some of these really pernicious uh, things that are going to go on that look like they look like pretty bad. I mean, yeah, Danny. Well,
1: I I just think um, another. It's important to recognize that anger, racism, war, fear, greed, these are not new things. These things weren't just created on election day or in the year leading up to the election day or in the reaction to having an African-American as president. Uh, These are things as far back in history as we can find existed. There's no ancient text that doesn't describe these, these aspects of of human beings in this uh, what do you call it the Kali Yuga hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know how long a Yuga is but I think it's longer than I'm going to be in this incarnation so I think a lot of um, you know you and I have talked a lot about Martin Luther King who to me has just somehow become like one of my teachers although I never met him I, uh, and, and in his last sermon he he told people I may not get there with you but we as a people will get to the promised land And I think we have to another level of this is to see ourselves as part of a a continuum that's not short term. There's there's this 24 hour news cycle, the Internet, the feeling that we have to react immediately, that we have to have a protest immediately. And there are times for protest. and and I'm not against protest per se. And I'm certainly in favor of trying to protect anybody who's being unfairly discriminated against or hurt. But this issue is 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 going to go on. It, it it was going on before we were in these incarnations. It's going to go on after we leave these bodies, and 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 there is another level on which whatever we do, we have to do it believing that over time it's going to make a difference. As Dr. King was saying about his life, and that he was not going to live to see the results of what he did, and yet we all today benefit from what he what what he did, and long after we're gone, our You know, our descendants will will benefit from it. So I I think there's a certain um, syndrome of short term thinking and and the feeling that you have to immediately come up with an answer to everything that that sometimes is is morally the right thing to do. But sometimes there's a trap and it takes it takes you out of really doing the work of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. I do have a little a, a pushback a little bit. Uh, because I happened to see this talk, or part of it, uh, by Naum Chomsky, Noam Chomsky. Chomsky, yes, Naum Chomsky. Yeah. Who? My mother. It was like my mother's like one of favorite uh, political people or social people, whatever. Whatever he represents. I so I'm watching this thing, and it's called uh, "Trump and the Decline of the American Superpower." It's a talk he gave at the. Uh, Democracy now, I believe. And it's obviously not that old. It's uh, after post-election. And and one of the things he said was, and this is to me the most scary part of this whole deal, obviously. Um, the next generation has, he said, a next generation has a tremendous responsibility <coughs> that has not been faced in 200,000 years since the dawn of man. And he went on about uh, just the uh, structural, the environmental, structural uh, falling apart that is going on right now. Um, And the fact that uh, it has gotten so out of sorts that in a recent, uh, uh, you know, the climate agreement that happened in Paris apparently has no teeth. There's no enforcement. There's no nothing. It was an, uh, an agreement of sorts. And they were trying to get that, uh, get some teeth into it in Marrakesh, just right at the time of the election. And of course, th- knowing that Trump was getting in, there was a, a sense of of giving up on, on every level, trying to get teeth into that uh, agreement. And the the weirdest thing that came out of it was that they were looking to China, to be the uh, that they just discounted America. And that China would—they were looking to China to come up with a plan to lead uh, nations into uh, recognition of, uh, of of the in- environmental disaster that is uh, portending. Um, and and then he went on from there about you know the lack of water, what's going on, the nuclear. I mean, he just—it was a very dire. Um, Talk, to say the very least.
1: Noam Chomsky's never been a flower child. (laughs) Uh, He's certainly a brilliant, brilliant scholar and has been an important voice on the left for my whole lifetime. And I agree with him about 80 percent of the time. But 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 there's a there's a balance between awareness and despair. And uh, I don't really understand uh, how despair makes anything better it just it doesn't seem to me like like anything positive comes from it one thing we know for sure there are forces in the universe greater than uh human minds generally can understand mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. MIT professors uh, even people on the be here now network and 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 we have <laughs> to uh we have to try to listen to those voices inside ourselves and play our part in in a cosmic plan that is beyond our understanding. Uh, uh, Now, I'm in favor of any pro-environmental idea that I've ever heard, and and I hope and pray somehow that the billionaires of the world who have so much power find family members or find inner guidance that that changes their course. But we do know that things in history that seemed hopeless uh, happened. I mean, when my grandmother was born, women could not vote in in the United States. And I've often wondered, how on earth did they ever get the vote when men had to give it to them? But somehow they did. Um, Again, uh, to read the history of slavery, 20 years before the Civil War, there was nowhere near a majority uh, opposed to, to slavery, including in the North, because there were all sorts of business people in Northern states who didn't have slaves, but who still profited from uh, the, the, the slave trade. Somehow this, this ended. So th- there have been mysterious uh, things in, in, in human history that have overcome uh, darkness. And I just feel that, that uh, uh, our role is to, in our own lives, do the best we can do. And, and, and that doesn't mean closing your eyes to environmental, uh, problems, but people have also been saying, uh, the end is nigh for hundreds of years. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I don't know what to do about that except pray and meditate, but then you, it, it, I'm not capable of meditating up until I, you know, go into Samadhi and pass on to another world. So coming back onto the earth, you do the best you can. And, um, I think that this goes back to the thing of fear is is to try to not be controlled by fear or anger, even to acknowledge it because we have no other... What's the alternative? The alternative is nihilism. And uh, I'm not into that. Yeah.
0: But just going back to, though, uh, this little statement of Chomsky's uh, around the next generation has this tremendous responsibility. So, Sharon... How do we speak to and how do we support the millennials and and the the people that are coming up to be millennials and the awareness? I mean, you know, my little grandchildren have awareness of what's going on, period. And uh, how do we speak to them in a way that um, allows them to create some space around – not falling into nihilism, as Danny just said.
2: Well, I agree with everything Danny said. I want to sit at his feet. I thought, <laughs> wow, that was great. <laughs> what a great. What a great reasoning behind meditation. That's great. Um, well, I mean, you know how to speak to them because you, you love them, right? Mm. And so in that moment, how old are your grandchildren?
0: They're two, five, and seven.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I don't know how you talk to seven the two-year-old. 7 and nine, but... actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, but uh, in that moment of love, we find something within ourselves that maybe two minutes before we didn't know was there when we were freaked out ourselves. And it's genuine. It's not like artifice or, you know, putting on a show for somebody. It's like we find that place inside of us that is, I think, really exactly like what Danny's talking about. It's hard. We have to do the best we can. We may not see the results right away. We're in this together. There's a quality of that togetherness that is beyond, you know, price, um, you know, that we, we, can't, we can't ever put a measure on. It's, uh, it's so important. And uh, you find that place in, inside yourself because you love them and that's what you want them to live with and live by. And so uh, that's one of the great things about service, actually, is that uh, it reunites us with that place inside ourselves that, that does know even if it's just for a few moments in, in that act. And then we're, we're replenished by that, you know, and is you know, I can't say enough that like, it's not artifice, it's not pretending, it's not putting on a show, but we are genuinely connected to something.
1: If I could chime in on this subject, we also not only need to talk to millennials, we need to listen to them. Mm-hmm. The, the The reality is for those of us that didn't want Donald Trump, Um, if there's, you can go on the internet and see what a map of the electoral map would have looked like if only people under 30 voted, uh, he would have won very, very few states would have been over, I think 65% or some extraordinarily high Mm. percentage of millennials voted for, uh, Hillary Clinton and did not vote for Donald Trump. Mm. And by the way, for those of us that look at ourselves as on the left, Politically, which I'm not sure is the right path, but it's the one that I am called to for most of my life. Um, uh, In the primaries, Bernie Sanders won about 70%. I have a bias here. I have two millennial uh, kids, 22 and 26. And um, boy, I I would uh, feel that the more that people in the political superstructure and NGOs listen to young people instead of telling them what to do but letting them guide us will be better off. There's something about being young that allows you to process things uh, without all of the prejudices and fears that we tend to get when we're older. And it was the same when we were young. During the Vietnam period, you had all these Harvard uh, graduates and PhDs in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations who had access to intelligence and far more quote unquote expertise than we did, saying that the Vietnam War was this terrific idea and it was required for our security. And young people intuitively knew it wasn't. And I believe today's young people have a lot to teach us uh, similarly.
2: Hmm. Rago, I remember talking to your niece, uh, Sunanda's daughter. Yeah, Tara. Tara. And God, I'm trying to think how old she was. Maybe she was 19 or 20. And we were at some conference together in California. And she said to me and, and her mom, my generation's going to change the world. You guys just talked about it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, OK, turning it over.
0: Well, here you, you know go.
2: It, it's it's uh
1: everybody changes the world. I don't know that we're going to see utopia and perfection in our lifetime or the lifetime of our children or grandchildren, but I do believe that for some of the things that we're talking about such as the environment and tolerance for people of different religious beliefs and sexual uh proclivities and things like that um that younger people uh, have somehow taken the best of civilization and they're the most progressive generation just really objectively are. it's yeah. not even close and it's it's not that way with every generation you know during the reagan years younger people moved to the right uh, but we have a generation of people that have grown up uh you know in an interesting time of the last 10 or 15 years and and, and i have a lot of confidence in them they may not have the expertise uh or the experience but they they have clear they have a moral clarity that I think should be supported. I think the best for people that want a so-called progressive vision, I, I, I think the more they can speak to and listen to younger people, that's the best chance out of Dodge.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there, uh, I find, you know, because we, we work with a lot of millennials here at the, at the foundation. It's the way that, uh, it's sort of serendipitously the right word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, serendipitously,
2: serendipitously
0: think. happened that all these people came when Ramdas said, "You know, I'd really like to see that whatever it is I've represented all these years can get paid forward, passed forward to to the next generation." So, however that's supposed to happen, you know, see what you can do. And as the director of the foundation, I thought, well, okay, I don't know how how what do I do? Put a an ad or put something on Facebook. I didn't do anything except sit there and suddenly, uh, literally over, you know, over a period of eight months, a year, and in that initial time, which is about six years ago, uh, people came to the fore uh, to really support what we've been doing. And you guys are part of the Be Here Now network, which, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened without these people, period. Podcast, none of it would have happened. Um, And they seem... They it's a it's a wonderful twofold thing. On one hand, they they're different from us. in in, in, I remember myself in the 60s and early 70s. My interest in in the spiritual path was very self-involved. There was very little. um, Danny, you were different because you were definitely interested in activism way, way from the get go, I think. Um,
1: Uh, uh, I was mostly I was more into LSD than I was (laughs) into SDS. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, All right, but I, I I I always had an interest in in the political world, but I was not attracted to the radical groups because the anger uh, turned me off. Even though I was against the war, against racism, and uh, right. you know, kind of have socialist economic I, 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 I ideas, but I, I was I was not. Uh, you know, my activism came uh, more later yeah. on.
0: Yeah, well, I I just for the most part I think that's where many of us were at, Sharon. I, I I don't remember we ever talked about. I think from the get-go you had a you started practicing meditation and zip you went for it. Went to India, and that's kind of what happened with me. I I went for it when I when I met Ramdas. These people, not only do they have a real interest in pursuing. Uh, the path and and mindfulness and awareness, but they have a real interest in carrying that into an mm-hmm, activist mm-hmm. Uh, pose, uh, well, absolutely. And role. Yeah. And I, I think
1: it, for for all of the frustration about the results of the election, I mean, I think we have to be candid about the limitations of the choice that the Democratic Party has given people. I've never voted for a Republican in my life, and I I support. I, I vote for whoever I think is the best person who has a chance of winning. I'm not. I'm not big on, uh, uh, you know, third party votes that won't help anything. But the reality is that 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 I understand why a lot of people are not inspired by what the Democrats have done over the last, you know, during the 16 years between the Clinton and the Obama administrations, because it 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 left a lot of people behind. And uh, there's there's an orthodoxy to that culture that has to be reformed in order for it to have credibility with the country, you know, at large. And that's part of the opportunity of being out of power is to is to work on that. Uh, And that's part of our work is within our own communities to uh, to really look carefully at at what's uh, what's not worked and what's turned people off. Because, you know, Donald Trump did not get more votes uh, than Mitt Romney did. It's just that Hillary Clinton got a lot less votes than Barack Obama did.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, Sharon, in your own experience in teaching and and going around, I know, you know, that many, many, uh, I I keep going back to next generation, millennials and so on, and um, who they are and how we can help in any way that we can help looking towards you know the longer term what is your experience with with uh, with younger people related to their interest in in teachings that you give as well as uh, are they opting out of, of of the political picture or of, of uh, social activism in your experience the people that are coming to IMS and so on
2: uh, actually, I wonder if Danny has statistics about, I know that map of if only millennials had voted, but how many millennials did vote and how many did not who were qualified to vote who were 18 or over?
1: Well, the turnout was lower than what President Obama got when he ran. And, uh, you know, I think that that there was a decision, you know, decisions made in the Clinton campaign, and I'm sure they thought they were doing the right thing, and I don't envy any of them, and I respect the difficulty of their task, but they ran a negative campaign. They ran a campaign saying Donald Trump is so horrible, vote for us because we're not Donald Trump. And that didn't uh, resonate with some of the young people. And I hear some Democrats saying, oh, it's the young people's fault that they didn't vote. And you know, I come from the rock and roll business and when people don't (laughs) applaud, we don't blame the audience. We try to figure out how to come up with a better song or a better ending to the show so that they will applaud and that 's uh, what these politicians have to do you don 't blame the audience. you figure out how to make them stand on their feet and applaud and uh, that's a that's a flaw, and that 's kind of part of what I was referring to it 's our job to inspire it's the politicians job or the uh, public interest group's job to inspire younger people not, not w- waving your finger at them and lecturing at them. How did we feel when people did that when we were teenagers it it's not effective
2: yeah uh, that's great i 'm going to use that. As- thought as a writer everyone hates my book it's not their fault (laughs) (laughs) must be mine um Uh, i mean i think no uh, nobody hates
1: your books that (laughs) is not true (laughs) (laughs) now there are people who don't know about your books and that's a dilemma (laughs) that we have to face with this complicated media but your books are wonderful
2: thank (laughs) you (laughs) i mean i young people i mean it is an amazing generation in many ways um i think they uh there was something of a split in my generation between those people who not always, but, you know, for, to some degree, between those people who were joining SDS and, uh, you know, uh, agitating and those people who were learning meditation and going to India, not completely, you know, and there are many examples of people who fused them, but, um, I think in this generation, it's much more fused, mm. uh, People, well, it's beautiful. It's like an integrated spirituality. It's not something apart from your life and how you treat your partner and your children and your neighbor and your environment. And, you know, instead of seeing it as an activity that you do, and uh, it, it's really very much part of your life. And um, I was amazed when I did some of the smaller retreats, like the one I did in the spring with Ram Dass on Maui. And there's a very young person there from Birmingham, England. And I said, what are you doing here? You know, it's a long trip. And and he said, it was the podcast, you know, it really changed my life. And uh, there's a young woman there from LA who was brave enough to come all by herself. She was maybe like 17 or something like that. And, oh, yeah. You know, what, what brought you here in the podcast, you know, and they're picking things up and making it real. And uh, I think that, that vision of a just world, it's natural to them, you know, like, um, they know biracial people. They know people with two moms, you know, and uh, it, it's right. a natural world for them. Where, right. you know, for me, it would not have been. Um, it would have been something very, very unusual.
1: No, the gay rights movement taught, taught the left so much if they would only take the teaching, which is they proved that you could change people's opinions and feelings, that what was unthinkable as recently as the 90s is completely integrated majoritarian today because they humanized and 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 put a human face and emotions on on gays and lesbians and and that that was not only great for them but it was a great lesson that you can change people's feelings by humanizing it and i think that's part of what we need to do with muslims and i think about us in a community that has a lot of buddhists a lot of bhaktis most of us are, were born Jewish <laughs> and 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 we quote the reverence that people like Nim Karoli and Yogananda and others uh, spoke about Jesus and there's still an ignorance even in my in my life about about Islam and and all I know is if a billion people uh, are connecting with the one God that I believe is present in all faiths through that pathway uh humanizing their belief system uh couldn't hurt
0: okay how to do that how let's you know um i i i actually think it's harder how do we humanize with uh, and harmonize with the people who demonize muslims gay and lbgtp everybody, everybody the racism how do we humanize and harmonize and be able to have a dialogue sit in a room with a with a couple of people who are completely on the other side of of how it is how how can we do that sharon this is up to you
2: well i mean i i think you know part of it is the understanding people are afraid to do that sometimes because I think it is what I was talking about before. It means giving up all sense of principle. Or I you know, I have to give up your view. And I don't think it means that. You know, um, it means looking at somebody as a human being and realizing, as always, there are causes and conditions. Uh, you know, for anyone's state. And um, it means listening, really deep listening. Like, what are those causes and conditions? Uh, because it's one thing for two people to come together around a position where they have diametrically opposed views. And it's another thing to reveal any kind of vulnerability, like um, I can't afford to send my kid to college. Well, I can't either, you know, or uh, I don't know what I'm going to do if (laughs) Medicare goes away, you know, like, um, or, you know, it may not even be as specific as that because not everyone understands policy and its ramifications, but you know, this is what my life has been like, and this is what has given me strength, and this is what holds me together. And, um, you know, and, and not to be in this kind of positional view. I think we can do that. You know, it's not that people are so far from being able to sit in that room, you know, but uh, it, in some ways, maybe the harder step is what happens then, you know. When you have a human understanding and, uh, you know, how do you actualize that Mm -hmm. into taking action?
1: There's Um, a book. There's a book about this that uh, uh, called Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Russell Hochschild, and she's a lefty sociology professor in Berkeley who decided to spend a couple of years in the most conservative part of Louisiana, getting to know people one-on-one, hmm. and uh, it doesn't have answers uh, in a simple way, but it's, it, it, it's very illuminating about the shared humanity that she found, and uh, I think that it's, uh, it's one person at a time. There's no question about that. And it's about listening to people and it's about talking to them. The reality is that our views are formed by a cluster of media that everybody is not accessible. Not everybody reads the New York Times, listens to NPR, reads the books we read, sees the movies we read uh, and watches television. And there's this whole other channel of communication that, that gives people a different view of reality. And if you want to know what it is, just listen to one of these right-wing talk radio shows for a couple of hours, and they're, 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 they have a different set of assumptions. And I happen to believe our set of assumptions are more correct than theirs, but I don't think we're perfect. And I and I and and I think that there there has to be some effort made at communicating with them. This is the problem: is that. We think, hey, we're in the New York Times, we're on 60 Minutes, we're, you know these, these are the peak horizon of our notion of how to communicate with people and it leaves out half of the country. And uh, you know, if you don't communicate with people and they're only hearing other things, uh, there was a poll done after the Iraq war uh, of people who watched Fox News that I think 65 or 70% of them thought that Saddam Hussein had invaded us on 9-11. Now, I'm a pacifist. I've been against every war in my lifetime. Uh, but my feelings about the Iraq war would have been quite different if I thought Saddam Hussein had actually attacked us on 9-11. I knew for sure that he didn't. They didn't. They literally had a different set of assumptions. So again, this is a long process to figure out how to reach out to people. and But, but there are a lot of people- to talk to and it, it has to start one person at a time uh, because they are not uh, reading the things we're reading
0: yeah that's uh, actually uh, a word for word quote that you you you're giving us right now Danny from Ramdas which how that whole retreat ended uh, succinctly was there's nothing we can do except heart to, to transmit that love that's deep inside us from heart to heart to heart to heart one person to another so you know how how very true and i um and, and the only thing that gets me through at any point and and i um since i'm prone to uh reactive anger is being that's my little uh talk about cause and conditions um and the only way in i would say for me is is to uh, my fortunate karma and having been been with a being who uh is a, an example of where what we can all be in this case named Karoli Baba um and and to dip into that uh, that pool um that uh is fortunately at at some point when I can let go of this polarization of this anger there's a Love, which is a shitty word. I mean, Sharon, you've talked about that word before. Um, I love when you once said, "Yeah, it's not like we're all wimps here." It's love <laughs> makes you think you're a wimp, um, but that is uh, the place from which uh, we have any chance at all. Which brings mm-hmm. me to the fact that you have a book coming out next year, Real Love, mm-hmm. and, um, and and I think that that is the great antidote to many of the issues that we're talking about around polarization us and them and uh, everything that uh, this uh, this whole situation is feeding into so big time so just give us a little preview perhaps related to uh, being able to what is love what are you talking about real love please
2: <laughs> well um uh, there's a kind of through line in the book. Uh, well, for, I don't know that I have the answer, you know. I should say that right <laughs> away, you know. And, uh, you know, I think the struggle or the process or the the experiment, the exploration, even the risk-taking um, in trying to figure it out is the point, you know. And so uh, there's a kind of through line in the book which actually came from a movie, um, Dan in Real Life, which goes something like, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Hmm. And uh, so that's kind of the basis of the exploration. I actually got into some trouble with an editor over that. He said, of course, love is a feeling and that's how we think of it. And it's what we yearn for. And that's what we, you know, we want. And I said, so then I equivocated to something like, yeah, love is a feeling and it's also, by the way, an ability, right. let's look at it as an ability. Um, there you go. It's not merely a feeling. That's right. Isn't it really a feeling? You know, because if it's an ability, it's a capacity within us that can be awakened by someone else or threatened by someone else, but it's not dependent on someone else. Right? It's not dependent on an external circumstance. It's an ability that is flowering or not. And and in some ways that's really the basis of practice is to return to those uh, perhaps innate abilities and give them a little breathing space and helping unclutter what's holding them down and, and uh, allowing them to, you know, to nourish them and, and come forth. And so uh, in the book, I sort of explore um, love for oneself, love for an other, whether it's a partner or a parent or a child or a pet or, or a neighbor or whatever, and love for all beings. And the part that was love for all beings um, really talks a lot about social justice and what's it like to have a movement that's based on, you know, a feeling of love and, and connection to all beings. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I turned in the book July 31st um, and it's coming out in June. And uh, the main editorial comment I got was you didn't really finish the book. It sort of drifts off. And I, course I thought I finished the book. That's why I turned it in, but I, you know, I ended it on a story and uh I guess it just drifted off, and I could not end it. I kept staring at that screen, and, like, I did end it. You know, of course I ended it. I wouldn't have turned it in if I hadn't ended it, but I couldn't come up with anything else. And my mind went to all these weird detours, like, um, just a a kind of pracy, like, that was very sarcastic, like, we've been on a journey together. Remember where our journey began? Chapter one. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't do it. And then the election happened and I ended the book, <laughs> you know, it that came to me and it was like two paragraphs. And
0: uh-huh.
2: uh, it, it basically was saying, if love is an ability, is it also a responsibility, mm. right? Like what's the nature of, of what I have to grow toward, you know, in this situation where um, there's so much sorrow or so much fear, or so much distress or whatever it might be. That's the
0: end of my book. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's not just an activity; it's a responsibility. That's that's really great. Oh, this is, and this is when I said earlier, what do we pass on to anybody? Obviously, mostly talking about the next generation because of what they really are going to be facing. As, aside from the historical aspect, Danny, that you talk about there is to me a reality that um that uh, noam Ch- chomsky is is what he's saying is real i mean that there's a real threat and uh and 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 young people are really going to have to Uh, you know, be uh, beyond on on the mark for it. And
1: listen, I agree with that. And I'm in favor of any policy or action anyone can take to reduce the perils of global warming and pollution and environmental disaster. But when we were growing up, there was a real threat of nuclear war. I remember getting these pamphlets about what would happen with a five megaton bomb. Uh, uh, uh Dropping in in New York, and and how many people would die within a one mile perimeter and a five mile perimeter in the fallout shelters. Other generations have dealt with a sense of apocalypse, hatred, disaster, and fear, and it's 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 worth learning from how they got through it, because otherwise the danger of the Chomsky rhetoric is it can become uh, nihilistic and yeah, just. Yeah. Uh, I, I I want to feel it connected to okay. What do we do? Yeah. yeah. What what no, is what do we what what do we do? And and I admire him, but not unreservedly.
0: Yeah. No, I I hear you. I'm just. Uh, I think what, uh, you know, the act the love is an activity and a responsibility, and and being able to engender that with with those that are are really going to be facing very very tough times, well beyond our lifetime. Uh, I think is super important. And uh, you know I just didn't want to make light of that uh, in in regards to the reality that this is not new. These things, as you say, have been going on. Forever. Well, the
1: only way to change these gigantic, selfish, dark institutions is to change enough public opinion that it actually moves the needle. and and we now know a simple majority is is not enough. So in order to change things, we have to relate to people who don't listen to Noam Chomsky. We we, we, we have to radiate to a broader yeah. uh, group of people. Uh, and uh, that I hope that some of the energy that's now being spent in protest can also be transmuted into persuasion and communication with a wider group of people, because otherwise, there's a certain self-indulgence to the mere yeah. anger and protest.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly, exactly how we started talking about this and the balance between social activism and uh, and inner work. Uh, and by the way, this hasn't been—I don't even know, Danny. You, we'll see how you feel about me announcing this. But since Sharon's book is coming out in the spring, and actually, this is crazy. I'm just realizing. Sharon, your book's coming out in June, June 1st, Mm -hmm. Real Love.
1: June 6th, 6th, yeah. June 6th. Mine is also coming out on June 6th.
0: Really?
2: Yes. You have a book coming out. Oh, yeah. And guess guess what it's called?
0: It's
1: called In Search of the Lost Chord 1967 and the Hippie Idea Summer of uh, Love. This this whole thing about looking to history, I admit, has been informed by I've spent the last six months of my life living in, in, in the past. But uh, there are a lot of there are some differences and there are some similarities.
2: Hmm. Oh, it's thrilling. I'm so excited.
0: You know, what we're going to do uh, on the Be Here Now Network and in our in our store. We're going to we'll blister pack the two books together on the <laughs> sixth. OK, Danny and Sharon. I am not,
1: not worthy, but I'll take it. <laughs> um, and by the way, I couldn't finish my book either until after the election. Oh well, interesting uh, you know it's a funny thing i was really uh trying to figure out how to end it and uh and then it came to me in in the weeks after the election uh i i, I don't want to i i just have one line that reflects the the current moment because it's not about the current moment yeah. it's about 50 years ago but uh somebody put out there's a facebook page called 50 year anniversary of the summer of love and someone put online who cares about 50 years ago there's problems today why should we care about the summer of love? And I just wrote, uh, "Love is beyond time."
2: Oh, nice, <laughs> nice.
0: Love is beyond time. I like that. Maybe we're gonna call love is. We're gonna call that uh, this podcast blister pack. You're the blister pack. <laughs> you know, the blister pack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God, thank you guys so much for hanging here. Thank with you.
2: This a, is this I'm so delight. excited about your book. I'm thrilled.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I about yours. Um, okay. All right. And, Thanks, uh, Rico. Yes. And, uh, of course, everybody listening, you guys can listen to both Sharon and Danny on the Be Here Now Network. And uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And we have a host of other wonderful offerings aside from the podcast, all beautiful articles uh, uh, and uh, videos and uh, the Heart Mind app. We, we got it all going. Uh, so... We shall see you next time on Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. See you guys.
2: Bye.